All right, so we're looking at Exodus 24, verses 17 and 18, and then chapter 32, verses 1 through 35. So let's, uh, let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and they said These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets." When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any 
Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pause to recognize uh, the reality of the situation. That as we come and hear from you, we are grateful to hear from you. And yet we know that without your good work by your Holy Spirit, we will, not, uh, we will not be able to hear. So would you please condescend to us? Would you open our ears that we may hear and our hearts that we may believe? Would you work in spite of our sin so that we might perceive you in, uh, rightly in your grace and your mercy? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've mentioned this, uh, I think, a year and a half, two years ago, um, as a sermon illustration, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, When I was, uh, I think, heading into ninth grade in 1992, I can remember going over to a watch party at a friend's house uh, to watch MTV's brand new show called The Real World. I don't know, have you heard of The Real World, right? All right, so uh, the real world, right, the tagline to the show explained it all, if you're not familiar with it. It said this, this is the true story of seven strangers picked to live in a house, work together, and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real, the real world. And really, in many ways, you can sort of point back and, and sort of trace the beginning of reality TV to this show, The Real World. And we were all excited to watch what would happen when you take these people that were really different from one another and, and, they, and they live together, right? What's going to happen? Um, because what, what you were hoping you would see and, and what you did see is what it does is it, it exposed people's real character. Uh, you saw people's true colors come out, right? You, you saw who they really were. And in some very small and possibly strange way, uh, I think that, that's sort of what we're seeing in this passage. 
Right? This is a, you know, probably a very well-known passage, um, but it's one that brings up a lot of uh, potentially difficult questions. Um, but it's one in which you see, in which you see people's true character come out. Right? God and His people in, in, the, in the story of history, of redemption, God and His people are beginning to live together in this sort of new and unique way. And what it does is it exposes um, what each are really like. It shows us the reality of people, and it shows us the reality, the true character of God, who He is and what He's like. And if you've been with us, you know that we're studying through Exodus this semester, which is the story of God's great uh, saving His people from, uh, from Egypt, right? Bringing them out of slavery. And our theme every week is that we're saying that Exodus is really the pattern of salvation, that what we see happening in Exodus, what we learn about God, who He is, how He saves, is emblematic of how He saves and who He is even today. And so as we look at these stories, we can learn a great deal about what it means to experience God's salvation. And tonight, what I want you to see, or what I think this passage shows us, it shows us a lot about reality. The reality of who you and I are, who people are, and the reality of who God is, and who He is and what He's like. Uh, You can kind of think of it sort of like we talked about last week, what the law does. It acts like a mirror and shows us ourselves, and a window we can look through to see God. That's sort of how we're going to look at this passage. So I want to look at three things. First thing we're going to look at is the reality of the people's distorted perception of God. Secondly, we'll see the reality of people's distorted perception of themselves. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the reality of God's grace to distorted people. All right. Um, And I feel like I should pause here and say thanks to a couple of my campus minister friends, to Brian Sorgenfry, Les Newsom. Uh, Pretty sure Brian stole a lot of stuff from Les. Not sure where Les got it, but I'm I'm sort of indebted to some of their their thoughts on this. First thing we need to look at is the reality of people's distorted perception of God. Right? Every week uh, we, we take time to rehearse where we are. We had Egypt, we had Israel, right? God's people, they're enslaved in Egypt. God shows up on the scene through, and, and through Moses says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to lead you out. And he rains down the plagues on, on uh, Pharaoh and he lets them go, leads them out up to the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, right? Defeats the enemies by parting the Red Sea back on them. And uh, they're free. Then he leads them through the wilderness, making sure that they have everything that they need, food and water. Uh, And then last week we saw that he gives them his law, which is a very good thing. And so we have God who is making, uh, renewing his covenant with his people. Right? This, This covenant where he binds himself, sort of marries himself to the people. And he gives them the law. And remember what they said, we can keep it. They hear the law, and they say that they can keep it. And so we pick up with God calling Moses up to Mount Sinai. And just before what we read, Moses tells the elders, he says, look, I'm going to go up here to the mountain. Um, you stay here. Don't do anything. Hang tight. I'll, I'll be back. And then Moses leaves, and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's when all of this goes down. All right, so what happens? Well, in verse 32, we see that the people get really impatient that Moses has been gone for so long. 
And so they go up to Aaron, who is Moses' brother and Moses' um, spokesman, right? And they tell Aaron, look, we don't know what happened to Moses, but you, we want you to make gods for us that we can follow. Uh, and so Aaron says, take off, you know, take off all of the gold, the, your earrings and, uh, you know, earrings and rings and such, which, where did they get that? Right? It was a gift from God. The Egyptians gave them all that as they left, remember? Take all of that off. And then uh, he uh, seems to, ca- he probably carves out of wood uh, this, this calf and then plates it in gold. And then they, the people essentially begin to worship it. And so, look, that begins to uh, sort of begs this big question um, that, all right, so what are the people doing? Are they worshiping? This totally new God, they're worshiping this, uh, this calf that's totally different from Yahweh that saved them, or are they worshiping uh, the God that saved them, but just trying to do it through this calf? And it's an interesting question, and I think really at the end of the day, I think we would say it's both. And either route you go, or whichever the three routes you go, um, what I want you to see is that they are, they are violating at least one and really both of the first two commandments that God gave them. Right? They are worshiping something other than the one true God. And or they are worshiping the one true God through something visible. And really what's at the heart of it all, here's what I want you to see. Really what's at the heart of it all in these people is that they want to decide what God is really like. That's it. That's where both of those strands come together. These people look and they say, yeah, we're not sure about that anymore. We want God to look like what we want him to look like. So you're going to make a God for us that reflects that. They don't understand the reality. They're not dealing with the reality of who God is. We want God to be like this. And so they're attempting to relate to a God that they have created and not the real God. And I hope you see that that is only going to result in dysfunction. Right? Certainly you know this from uh, your own experience or uh, a friend, right? You've seen some sort of bad dating relationship where, um, where two people are dating each other, but at least one of them is not really dating the person that they they are taking out on dates, but they're dating this idea that they have in their mind of that person, right? Certainly you've seen that. Um, they're, they're trying to relate to this person as they want them to be and not relating to who they really are, right? If you keep, if, let's say if you're a guy, you're, you're dating a girl, if you keep lying to yourself and believing that your girlfriend really does only want to hang out with you and your guy friends and watch football all day long and she loves it and that's, that's all you ever do, right? Don't be surprised when things start to fall apart. Right? Because you're, you're dating the girl that you're making up in your mind and not the real person. And that's exactly what these Israelites are doing. And I think it's fair to say that it's what all of us do. It's our natural, it's our default tendency as human beings. We want, to, we want to craft a God. We want to relate to a God that we've made ourselves and not the real God. 
We want God to be small enough that He answers to us and, and so that we can shape Him. And now look, you probably don't have, if you do, you know, look, we can talk about it. You probably don't like actually carve idols and, and worship those things. But we still essentially do the same, same thing, right? Uh, we craft an image of God. It might look like um, shaping God in such a way in your mind that He really essentially looks like a, a, pro- a professor. A professor that looks and says, if you, if you work hard, then you'll be rewarded. And if you don't, if you're lazy, then you're going to get uh, dinged for it. Something like that. And it's no wonder then, if that's the God that you fashion, that you get frustrated when you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to do and yet you don't get the reward that you're looking for. You don't get the, the boyfriend or girlfriend or the car or the, you know, the grade or whatever it is. And it breeds frustration. You're frustrated with God. Or maybe you shape God uh, into this sort of um, kindly old grandfather that all he does is smile and his whole function is just to, just to make your life happy and to give you stuff. And so when life goes wrong, it, it bumps up against this, this, this God that you're trying to relate to. And it's no wonder that we get angry and frustrated. Uh, and, and we sort of, maybe you craft a God sort of like that uh, grandfatherly figure that uh, basically he just sort of winks at sin. You know, it's not that big a deal. Like, hey, we all do it. And it's no wonder that we get frustrated when the, when the law comes into our life and it, and it rubs up against us. Because we've shaped God the way we want him. And that kind of relationship is only going to bring dysfunction. Or it might look like setting up something entirely different either uh, to share, uh, sort of share the throne, so to speak, with God or, or replace him altogether. Because look, every, every single person worships something. Because worship just means uh, that, you, that you devote your life to something. You look at something outside of yourself and bigger than yourself and you say, this is the thing that's going to uh, make sense of life for me. You're going to be God to me. And so it, might, it can be anything. It can be money or sex or your grades or being popular, um, being athletic, whatever it is, right? And it's the, it's the same inherent mistrust of God. You can't really trust that God, so I'm going to make my own. Right? We think God, God won't give me... Like, sure, I'll worship God. But He... Whatever satisfaction he, want, he holds back from me, I'll get it from Instagram or from my friend group or from pornography or from my job or whatever it is. And you begin to see the reality of what our hearts are doing, right? Um, yeah, it's essentially... If you think about what's going on here, and I think this will help you understand why God seems to react so harshly... Um, Right, this, God, God has loved his people and saved his people, cared for them in every way, and, and this is how they're reacting to him right, right off the bat. Right, it, would be like, it would be like if uh, when Amy and I got married, right, we, take, we take vows and say, I will be with you forever. You are my treasured possession. Can you do those things? Yes, we can do them. 
And then we go on our honeymoon, and that first night we go out to dinner, and uh, you know, Amy goes back, uh, says, oh, I left something in the room. I'm going to go back to the room. And she's gone for a few minutes, and you know, I, don't, I don't know where she is. It's been like five minutes, and you know, I get bored. And so I go up to the bar and meet somebody else, and, you know, essentially, you know, connect with them and, and think, Amy will be fine with this. Why wouldn't she? This, this would be great. Right? That, like, when you put it in that context, that's horrific. And that's the picture of what Israel is doing. It's the picture of what you and I do. We replace God. We shape Him ourselves. Secondly, second thing I want you to see is the reality of people's distorted perception of themselves. So we learn something else that's really troubling about these people, and it's also true of us. And it's what we see sort of through the lens of Aaron in the story. Right? We just said that to be in right relationship with somebody, you have to relate to the real them. Right? You can't relate to some projection of them. Well, the flip side is also true. You have to put forward the, the real you to be related to properly. If not, there's just going to be dysfunction. Illustration for that, and I'm stealing this from everybody else that I you know, heard preach this. You've, if you've seen The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, right? Amy and I spent about a decade watching it. Um, I don't know if that makes us cooler or, or less cool in your eyes. Um, but we, we finally stopped. But um, If you think about The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, right? the couples never make it. There's like three ever that have made it, right? Now, why do you think that is? Now, I'm sure there's, there's a host of reasons. <laughs> we, time fails us. Um, right? Don't, like, terrible idea. Don't go on The Bachelor or Bachelorette. But look, I think one of the main reasons that these couples don't work out um, is because, because the person that you're dating on the show is not the real them. Right? If, let's say it's The Bachelor. The girls on the show, let's take the, you know, one, the one girl he ends up with. Um, she has been in front of cameras, and thus the world, competing with other women. Right? She has put her best foot forward, has always you know, been incredibly attentive to him, done whatever he wanted, been more adventurous, um, has always been, you know, some of these things you can control, some you can't, um, has been dressed perfectly has been in some sort of amazing setting, right? And then they get home, and that's just not the real her. And her hair doesn't always look like that, and she actually is not always totally consumed with him. She has her own interests, it turns out. She's not always quite that nice. Whatever. Right? But you get the picture. The relationship falls apart because it wasn't the real her. And so if we're going to be in right relationship and real relationship with God, we have to deal with the reality of who we are. So did you notice that when when Moses confronts Aaron, that he doesn't exactly deal in reality with who he is and what he's done? Did you catch that? Look, there's two big ways that he distorts, uh, that uh, betrays his distortion of how he perceives himself. The first thing he does is he blame shifts. Look at verse 21 and, and following. Moses comes to Aaron and he says, what in the world could these people have done to you that, that you did this? And Aaron says, you know these people. These people are evil. 
Aaron's confronted with his own sin, and his instant reaction is to say, it was them. It wasn't me. It's not my fault. And then he goes on to say that the people were upset because you, Moses, were gone so long. So I think you could even see he's sort of backdoor blaming Moses. Like, I mean, look, if you hadn't been gone so long, maybe. But he's saying, look, this is not my fault. It makes us think of Genesis 3, right? When sin enters the world. God comes to Adam and he says, what, what have you done? And what does Adam say? He says, it was the woman that you put me here with. What wasn't me. And look, this is an easy one to see, right? It's not hard to look into our hearts, into our lives, and to see that this is us. Right? We, our hearts blame shift because we don't want to recognize the reality of how bad we are. Look, ask, a lot of you know me, some of you know me very well, ask the people that do, it's never my fault. It's not my fault. Because we don't want to admit the reality of who we are, so the blame is somewhere else, right? It's because I haven't gotten enough sleep. Um, It's because she is so mean to me. Um, It's because I don't come from money. Uh, It's because... It's because the culture that I am surrounded by tells me I have to look like this. It's because the culture I'm surrounded in is always pushing sex on me. It's because he started it. Right, on and on. Our hearts don't admit the truth that it's my fault. The second thing he does is he minimizes his sin, right? And this, is, this would almost be funny if it wasn't true and thus terribly sad. Verse 24, Aaron says, he took the gold, he threw it into the fire, and out came a calf. Right? Is anyone going to buy that? You know, you can picture him like, okay, all right, look. So, yes, I might have had a little part in this. I might have taken the gold. I might have thrown it in the fire, but the, the, the calf thing just popped out. Look. I mean, like, yeah, I did a little bit of this, but look, this is not all my fault. We've seen this at our house before. Did you hit your brother? No. I mean, I barely, like, I mean, maybe just kind of, right? Or, no, I mean, okay, I was mad. And I was punching toward him. But but he kind of turned into me and, right... And look, those are silly examples, right? But you and I still do it. It's just a little more polished, right? We minimize our sin and do the same things. I did it last night with Amy. You'll love this. She was rightly telling me that I was not handling talking to one of our our kids, sort of disciplining one of our kids the right way. Again, she was right. And so I I sat there and took it for like five seconds. And then... (laughs) And then I responded with, and I quote, well, I guess you've just got the market cornered on parenting, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's brilliant. (laughs) But what am I trying, what's the strategy behind, the strategy is, on one level I recognize I haven't done right, but I want to bring up your wrong Let's look at you so mine maybe doesn't look quite so bad, right? It's not that big a deal. What about you? 
And so we say things like, yeah, we compare. I'm not as bad as them. I'm not addicted. Or we say, it's just a little whatever. Or we say, you know, we think, I wasn't trying to be mean. It wasn't my intention to whatever. Our hearts are desperate to show that we're not as bad as we really fear. That's who we are. That's the reality. Thirdly and finally and and quickly, I, I want you to see the reality of God's grace to distorted people like us. Yeah, we've seen a lot of the problem, right, who we are. But this passage also shows us a lot about who God really is and his grace to us. And overall, the big thing that I want you to see is that God, God gives us a mediator. He gives us a representative, a, a go-between. Somebody that can come between God and his people and, and fix the relationship. The mediator in the story, obviously, is Moses. And there are two aspects I want to look at very quickly. The first thing I want you to see is that Moses intercedes for his people. Uh, Where do you see it? Verses 11 through 14. When God tells Moses, look, uh, Israel has done this thing. And he says, basically, leave me alone. Scoot over. I'm going to wipe them out and I'll start over with you. And Moses Moses intercedes for his people. And I want you to notice what he does because I think this is beautiful. Uh, Verse 11, 12, and 13, uh, he basically gives three sort of reasons. Verse 11, he appeals to God's sort of fatherly affection for his people. These are the people that you love, that you you brought out of Egypt. Out of slavery. Verse 12, he appeals to God's reputation with the rest of the world. He basically says, look, uh, the rest of the world, the Egyptians are going to... They're not going to perceive who you rightly are uh, if you do this. So for your name's sake. Verse 13, he appeals to the promises, God's faithfulness. Right? He says that you have made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeals to his faithfulness. Look, so what's the point? What I want you to see, if you don't take anything else from away tonight, look, get this. That Moses appeals to God's character to intercede for his people. In other words, he doesn't point to anything about Israel, about the people. He doesn't go to God and say, all right, look, look, it wasn't, okay, yeah, they made a calf, right? But at least it's only one. Um, He doesn't say, look, all right, look, I'll talk to them. They will never do this again. They'll get better. He doesn't point to anything about them. He points everything about his appeal to God's character. And his appeal is answered. And what I want you to see is that that is really good news. That is really good news. If you find yourself tonight, if you're hearing this, and you find yourself either for the first time or just again really exposed right, by the reality of who we, who we are, who you are as a person, if you find yourself being exposed because you see the reality of your character then this is good news because you don't have to hide anymore. Because salvation is all about who God is. It's about His work and His character, His faithfulness. So you can actually come, you can actually move towards God in all of your filth. In all of your shame and your your, um, blame shifting and hiding 
You can actually, come, you can actually drop all that and come to God. Because it's all entirely based on the goodness of His character. You can throw yourself onto His mercy. The second thing and last thing I want you to see that Moses does is he tries to intercede, uh, rather he tries to make atonement, sorry, for his people. Verses 30 through 35, Moses goes up to God as the mediator and he tries to make atonement. Right? He tells the people, you have sinned a great sin, perhaps I can go up and make atonement. And so he goes and he asks God, if you will forgive this people, and then he, he basically cuts off in mid-sentence. And he says, but if not, blot me out of your book. Do you see what Moses is saying? He's basically saying, look, if the only way that these people can be right with you is that if somebody else takes, takes the punishment, if the only way you can accept them is by, by rejecting someone else, by rejecting someone, then take me instead of them. Let me stand in their place. But God doesn't accept. You, we can, you, know, you can tell by God's silence that he, he says no. So why not? Why doesn't God accept? And the answer is because Moses can't be the ultimate mediator. Because Moses was a sinner. He was a good dude. Better than most, probably. But he had his flaws. And as you read on in Exodus and uh, the rest of the Pentateuch, right, you see that he had some serious flaws. But God was going to send the true mediator thousands of years later in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. God doesn't accept Moses as the mediator because essentially he says, I'm going to have to come and do it myself. And he shows up, Jesus, God in the flesh, and he is the mediator for his people. He lives a perfect life, always worshiping the real God. Perfectly loving the real God, and then he stands in place of his people, and he basically says, take me instead of them. And he faces the full wrath of God on the cross. 1 John 2 1 through 2 says this If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that turns away God's wrath. And that points us right back to what we said about, uh, about the mediator interceding. That, that the good news that salvation is based on what God has done and not on what you and I do. So you don't have to clean yourself up to, to be right with God. You can't. You don't have to get your character and kind of, kind of polish it up and drag it along with you and see if God will take that. Because, because the good news is exactly that. It's just good news that God has done it for you. And because He's done it for you, that means it's free for you to take. That's the good news offered to you tonight. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful. We have to confess that we, 
can scarcely understand these truths and left to ourselves, we wouldn't. Father, help us in your grace and mercy to see the reality of who we are in our sin and allow it graciously to point us to you, to the mediator, to one who stands in our place so that we can, we can be right with you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.